Well, happy Resurrection Sunday. Um, Today is a special day in the Christian calendar where we pause our normal rhythms and schedules um, and even wear things like ties. I I do own one of these one day a year. Um, But it's where we pause our, our normal rhythms and schedules to celebrate the most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today, in particular, we're going to be looking at John chapter 19 and 20. Uh, It's a large section of text, but uh, I actually want us to read the whole thing in detail. And then we're going to be zooming in on three different people's experience in the resurrection and see how it affected them, how it changed their lives forever. But before we do that, uh, I want to read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says this in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice here that Paul sees three things as of first importance. Now, it's human nature. Well, uh, maybe it's my nature to see almost everything as of first importance. But that's not true, is it? Yes, there are doctrines that I would say are amazingly important for us to know why we believe what we believe on. But they're not all of first importance. These ones are. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So death for sin or substitutionary atonement, Christ being our substitute and dying in our place, burial, real physical death, and raised on the third day or resurrection. Paul is saying these are the bedrock of Christian faith. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, First, we want to say we are so glad that you're here. You are always welcome here. And second, we want you to know that this is what Christianity is all about, regardless of what you've been told Christianity is. Christianity is all about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's the last of these that we're picking up today. Resurrection. We'll see later that Paul says, if there was no resurrection, we as Christians are of most to be pitied. In other words, we're all wasting our time if this resurrection thing really didn't happen. So, with that in mind, we turn to our text for the day. John chapter 19, starting in verse 28. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, There should be a black pew Bible in in the chair in front of you. 
Um, if you don't own one, that's yours to keep. We would love for you to have a Bible. So John chapter 19, starting in verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that. He just had to get it in there that he outran Peter. <laughs> Verse 5, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with, with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, 
They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. First, I want us to notice, after that long section of text, I want us to notice that everything about Jesus' death went absolutely according to plan. There was nothing about the entire proceeding that God wasn't sovereignly in control over, down to the tiniest detail. Arthur Pink, who was a 19th century pastor, he notes the following. He says, Every important detail of the great tragedy had been written down beforehand. The betrayal by a familiar friend, the forsaking of the disciples through being offended at him, the false accusation, the silence before his judges, the being proven guiltless, the numbering of him with the transgressors, the being crucified, the mockery of the spectators, the taunt of non-deliverance, the gambling for his garments, the prayer for his enemies, the being forsaken of God, the thirsting, the yielding of his spirit into the hands of the Father, the bones not broken, the burial in a rich man's tomb, all plainly foretold centuries before they came to pass. What a convincing evidence of the divine inspiration of the scriptures. I want us to see two truths here. Number one, God's word can be trusted. God's word can be trusted. These details that I've just read off and that that were foretold thousands of years before and that happened, they're not vague details, are they? they? They're not vague details that could have been fulfilled a thousand different ways and then claimed as prophecy with their background. These are small details that were foretold by God through the mouths and pens of prophets hundreds of years prior to Jesus even being born. To chalk these fulfillments up to chance or to luck is absolutely ludicrous. The only rational conclusion here, based on the evidence, is that the Bible is actually divinely inspired. It's a divine book written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God, who is all good, all powerful, and all knowing, he set forth a plan from before the beginning of time, And then he carried out that plan perfectly, according to the scriptures, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That's a God who can be trusted. That's a God who you can stake your faith 
hand your life on. He knows what he's doing, down to the tiniest detail. Second, in these prophecies, we see two different kinds of fulfillment taking place. First, there are fulfillments that Jesus himself is passive in. He has no human control over the the spectators at his crucifixion. He has no human control over what happened with his garments or if they broke his legs or not. But there are other parts of fulfillment that Jesus actively goes after. Look at verse 28 in our text. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Even though Jesus knew that God was sovereign and that the scriptures were going to be fulfilled, he had an active role. He knew the word of God. He knew that God was sovereign. But he also knew that he had a responsibility to be obedient in living out God's word. So see this. Yes, God is sovereign, but he also uses means. We're not meant to be passive observers, simply doing nothing and kind of twiddling our thumbs, waiting for Jesus to come back. We're called to know the word of God and to actively live it out. Everything about Jesus' death went absolutely according to plan. Second, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection transformed people's lives. So we're going to take a look at three of those people specifically. First, Joseph of Arimathea. I love this. Joseph of Arimathea. This guy is literally a nobody. We don't know a whole lot about him from church history or from anywhere else. Yet, he honored Jesus here in a time where it would have been an opportune time to not be associated with him. This guy had a quiet and a strong faith. For the most part, this is what I want us to see. He lived in the background. Jesus had transformed him. And he lived a life that honored Jesus, quietly, but profoundly. So Joseph of Arimathea. Second, Nicodemus. If you're familiar with the book of John, where did we see Nicodemus last in the book? The text even goes out of the way to tell us. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, and he reminds us, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. So this same guy who came in the night to Jesus and could only see things from a physical perspective, the same guy who only looked for signs, the same guy who wasn't born again yet, here had been transformed and changed. John chapter 3, all the way back at the beginning of the book of John, Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's still dead in his sins and kind of covert about any interactions he has with Jesus. By John chapter 7, verses 50 and 51, look at this. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, meaning 
one of the, the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So look at that. He's starting to get it a little bit. He publicly, in front of the other Pharisees, defends Jesus. John chapter 19, our text today, he's honoring Jesus publicly and at great cost, financially and relationally. How encouraging is this? There's growth here in grace. Just because someone doesn't get it right away or doesn't understand everything of Christianity in one sitting, don't look down at them. Don't give up on them. Sanctification or growth in grace, it's a process. It takes time. There are some Christians like Nicodemus whose end is far better than their beginning. That's true of all of us. Jesus' life, death, and burial changed Nicodemus' life. Third, and finally, this is where we're going to camp out most of our time today. I want us to look at Mary in this text and how Jesus' resurrection affected and changed her. John chapter 20, verse 11. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. What we see happening here is meant to be in sharp contrast to verse 10 right before it, which says, Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John and Peter go to the tomb. They see the burial clothes. And then they're out. They go home. They take in the information. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of meditation or emotion involved. And they move on. But Mary is distinctly different, isn't she? She stayed when all the others left. And what I want us to see is the Lord honors this. What happens next in our text isn't just a mistake. It's not as if the angels and then Jesus kind of arrive on the scene and think, oh no, we just missed Peter and John. No, this is intentional. It's intentional who they reveal themselves to and when. Mary's heart is broken. Her devotion to the Lord is very apparent. And she stays to honor Christ. Therefore, Christ honors her by showing up. Check out what happens next. Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Can you imagine that? You're at the tomb. You're weeping, scared, even angry because you assume that someone has stolen the body of your dead friend. And then two angels appear (laughs) after getting over being scared. These two angels should have given Mary great comfort that no one could have taken away her Lord. And this is why in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, says this, 2 Kings 19, 35, says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out, 
and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. One angel, 185,000 dead. And here at the tomb are two angels. The presence of angels signifies the presence of God's work and God's hand. John's point here is that the empty tomb can't be chalked up to grave robbers. It's God's power at work. But Mary, initially anyway, misses this. Look at verse 13. They, meaning the angels, said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So the angel's question is rhetorical. It isn't meant to garner information. They're making a statement to Mary. Mary, based on the information that you already have, why are you weeping? See, Mary weeps when she doesn't need to. Although her sorrow and anxiety is real, it isn't needed because Jesus is risen, not lost. In Mary's case, the absence of the body seemed to be a great tragedy. But we know that it was the greatest good, both for Mary and for all of mankind. He is risen. Verses 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So like the angels, Jesus asks two probing questions. Number one, just like the angels, a mild rebuke. And the second, a deeper question. On the surface, it seems like a practical question, but when we stop to think about it, Jesus is asking a much more than just a basic question. He's saying, Mary, do you understand who I am? What kind of Messiah were you expecting? Whom are you seeking? It's apparent by now that Mary was merely seeking an earthly human Messiah. When we look at the question longer, we realize that Jesus is asking a question that's actually meant to lead Mary to the truth. But Mary still doesn't get it. Perhaps she thinks that this gardener is the one who moved the body or maybe saw who did. She even seems to want to give Jesus a proper burial. She says, look, just tell me where he is. I'll take him away. Again, I can't imagine being in Mary's shoes here. I probably would have done the same thing, running around frantically, upset, just trying to honor Jesus the best I knew how. But here's the thing. She's so busy and so frazzled that she misses Jesus, who's physically standing right in front of her. This same Mary, who we know was devoted to Christ, who, verse 11, remember, she stayed back at the tomb when the other disciples went home. That same Mary had way too low of an estimation 
of who Christ was. The Christ of her mind was way too small. So Jesus speaks again. But this time, it's personal. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Amazing. Jesus simply says one word in the way that he's always said it, compassionately, empathetically, lovingly. Mary. And she knew immediately who it was that was speaking to her. John chapter 10, verses 3 through 4. Jesus says this. He says, To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. The good shepherd calls his sheep by name, and they follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus said to her, Mary. All of a sudden, Mary's sorrow was turned to excitement, her weeping into joy, her confusion into adoration. This is what happens when Jesus calls you. You're transformed, you're changed. There's clarity. And she responds by speaking to him in the way she always has, saying, Rabboni. She's elated to see Jesus alive. And apparently this cry of Rabboni turns into a quick embrace of Jesus. And again, Jesus responds. Look at verse 17. She calls out Rabboni, embraces him. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read verse 17, my first thought is, Come on, Jesus! Just just let her have her moment. She's upset and then excited. She's just trying to hug you out of joy. So what's going on here? Does Jesus just not like being hugged? I don't think so. Again, I believe Jesus, the Rabboni, the the teacher as she calls him, I believe that he's trying to teach Mary something very important. While Mary recognizes Jesus immediately upon him calling her, There's still yet a lot that she doesn't understand. J.C. Ryle, he comments here that very likely she behaved too much like one who thought all must be right if she had her Lord's bodily presence and all must be wrong in his bodily absence. This was not the highest style of faith. She acted, in short, like one who forgot that her master was God as well as man. She made too little of his divinity and too much of his humanity. And hence she called forth our Lord's gentle rebuke, touch me not. Yes, Jesus cares about Mary. 
and about her immediate well-being. But even more important, he cares about her long-term spiritual well-being. He knows that her understanding of his divinity is far more important than a temporary emotional high. Jesus wants Mary and us this morning to understand and believe a key truth here. While Jesus' physical presence with us day in and day out would be really nice, upon his ascension, he's actually given us something better. His spirit. This is great news. Think about this. Business people, when you go to your job, realize that you have the spirit with you. Moms, When you're overwhelmed at home with your kids and the the thousand other things that keep you going, realize that you have the Spirit with you. Teachers, when you're stressed out and you can't figure out how to handle a situation at school, realize that you have the Spirit with you. This is even better than having Christ's physical presence next to you. His spirit lives inside you, Christian. John chapter 16, verse 7 says this. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is another word for the spirit, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you see what Jesus wanted Mary, why he wanted Mary not to cling to him? There was something better coming. His spirit was going to live inside her. Now, back to our passage in John 20, verse 17. Notice, notice how kind Jesus is to the disciples here in this statement. Even after deserting him, and shamefully forsaking him just three days earlier. Here Jesus is forgiving them, and he cares for them with this message. He shows compassion and confidence in these people who frankly didn't deserve it. Jesus forgives, and he welcomes them back with open arms. Look at what he says. He says, I am ascending to my Father, and your father, to my God and your God. He affirms that God is their father and their God. Even though they had forsaken him, he hadn't forsaken them. He's faithful. Psalm 103, verses 13 through 14 says this. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. Meditate on that for just a second. Put yourself in the place of Mary, or of one of Jesus' disciples. Think about how tenderly he cares for them. Think about how compassionate and faithful he is to them. Now, Remember this, Jesus never changes. Jesus never changes. That same compassion that we see in this text 
Jesus has it for you this morning. The same forgiveness he shows in this text. He has it for you. The psalm we just read, Psalm 103. I want us to look back at it again in verses 10 and 12. Psalm 103, 10 through 12. It says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Think about that. Because Christ doesn't change, because God doesn't change, those who have repented of their sin and believed in Jesus can proclaim that truth along with David the psalmist, along with Mary, along with Joseph of Arimathea, and along with Nicodemus and the disciples. In fact, Jesus' resurrection leads to all of our shared sonship with God as our Father. Because he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, those who have repented and believed in Christ are adopted heirs and sons. He is Christ's Father and our Father, Christ's God and our God. What a comfort, Christian. The King of the universe calls you son and calls you daughter. No matter what trial you're going through, God doesn't forget about you or hang you out to dry because he's your father and you're his child. If you're here today and you know that that's not you, that you're not a child of God, we have great news for you. You can be today. You can give your life to Christ. You, like Nicodemus, Mary, and millions of others throughout history, can have new life. You can be transformed because of Jesus' life Death, burial, and resurrection. That's the meaning of Easter. That's why we celebrate today. If you have questions about that, Rob and Ross and I would love to talk to you after the service. We'll be up here just waiting around. We'd love to talk to you. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When Christ died, our sins died with him on the cross. They were put to death. Because Christ was buried, our old person, our old way of life was buried with him. And because Christ rose from the grave, we did too. We get new life in Christ. And that is something to celebrate this morning. Let's pray.